The problem is that millions of people are trying to get to the border because they don't have a life in their country and they hope they can make a life in the United States. And unless you deal with that, uh, that large number of people coming to the border and how to process them, we can't, we're not doing it holistically. You've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co founder, along with Todd Miller of the weekly newsletter on the U.S.-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can follow more of our work on thebordercronicle.com. Today, I'm speaking with Musafar Chishti, a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute and an expert on how immigration policies at the federal, state, and local levels intersect. Thank you so much for joining us today for our spooky Halloween podcast. And uh, really, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, there's really nothing scarier than our broken immigration system at this point and asylum backlogs, which we're going to dive into today. And I, I appreciate you being here with us. Um, and uh, before, you know, we, we were just talking that there were some uh, announcements made yesterday, maybe. Do you want to start off with that? Oh, just to uh, apprise your listeners, uh, last night, the Biden administration announced that it would redesignate Venezuela for temporary protected status, which means that any Venezuelan nationals who have entered the United States before July 31st of this year are eligible to apply for temporary protected status. That, as I'm sure your listeners know, allows people to stay in the U.S. without threat of removal and also gives them the right to apply for work authorizations. Uh, we estimate that uh, close to 425,000 people are going to be eligible for this program. So that's a good chunk of the new arrivals. Uh, but in many ways, it's an extension of uh, the policy we have been having towards Venezuelans for over two years now. Right. And I should say that we are recording this in uh, in September and it's going to air in October. And um, we'll see what changes between now and then. But the the what what you just discussed is is important. Um, but let's let's say our immigration system is like an old car that you take to the mechanic to repair. And the mechanic says, here are all the things that need to be fixed for this car to continue working. What do you think needs fixing from your perspective with our current immigration system? It's interesting that you drew the car mechanic analogy. I like to say if you're in physical therapy and you go to fix your neck, the physical therapist will soon go and tell you it's also your shoulder. So it's, right. so it's kind of a, it's more, I increasingly believe now that immigration is just not a policy issue. It's the systems. So if you push one end of the system, it's likely to have a ripple effect on some other end of the system. And, you know, in our uh, 
immigration field, especially politicians, tend to focus on one corner of the problem, the corner that is closest to their to their political need. And no one looks at the whole problem. And that's why it becomes a kind of a sustained problem. It never gets quite addressed. And, you know, we see it simmering in various forms. But to answer your question directly, and probably as pithily as one can, uh, I think we have two crises in immigration today. And they're related, though people don't appreciate how related they are. One is that we actually have need for a large number of foreign workers for our labor market. We have sectors of the economy where the need for labor uh, market is very strong, and we just do not have enough U.S. workers to meet them. Uh, we have an we have an aging workforce. We are fast getting trappings of Europe and Japan. Baby boomers are retiring at ten thousand a day. Uh, so we have labor market needs that the whole spectrum of the labor market for high skill to low skills to middle skills. And we, so the obvious thing is that why don't we get foreign workers to meet them if we need them? And let me also just quickly say the other need why we have is for our social security system. Our social security system is one for which we need active participating young workers to keep it alive so that baby boomers who are retiring could have Social Security. And so the for the stability and sustainability of our Social Security system, we need, uh, we need new young workers who increasingly are going to come from abroad. So both for domestic labor market needs and fiscal reasons, we need foreign workers. And our present immigration selection system which is built on a 1952 architecture and has been tweaked only a couple of times since, is just not producing the right number and the right kind of immigrants to enter. So to be precise, we allow only 7% of our annual admission on the basis of the demonstrated labor market need of our country. Now, that doesn't make sense to anyone. It doesn't make sense even to a Trump supporter. But we don't have a, a way to address it because Congress has refused to address uh, our immigration prop, uh, prop, you know, policy, especially related to selection of immigrants since 1990. So that's our dilemma. We have a 1952 architecture which was slightly tweaked in 1990 last time, and that's not a solution for the 21st century economy. So we all know, I think Republicans, Democrats generally agree that we need to increase the legal avenues for people to come. But the reason that's not happening is because we have another crisis, and that's the crisis at the border, that we have millions of people from all parts of the world, not just from Mexico, Central America, and South America, coming to the border, seeking entry to the United States. And the only quick way for them to seek entry is to seek asylum. So the asylum has become 
the default mechanism for people to enter the United States to improve their lives, but it also to meet the labor market needs of our country. But that's obviously an irregular method. That is, uh, that's a fallback method. So we have therefore created a big backlog for determination of our asylum claims. And the backlog has become the magnet for people to come to make unauthorized entries to the United States. That's the crisis. And coupled with the crisis for labor market needs, that's what I would say is our immigration dual crisis. Right. And and how long is the backlog now for asylum cases? And, and how... What could the Biden administration do to fix that, or can they fix it? Well, the last we heard, there are now 2 million people in the asylum backlog. So we, uh, I mean, 2 million, sorry, people in the in the immigration backlog, and we think more than 50% of them are asylum backlogs. Now, the, uh, and the wake times now are, right now are about four years. We think that is going to only multiply given the new numbers coming in, it may go up to six, seven years. And during that time, people are obviously allowed to continue to stay in the country. They're also allowed to legally work. So that has become the magnet in itself. So people who are actually not even qualified for asylum add to the backlog so that people who actually deserve asylum don't get it. So that's the dual problem in that system. So one of the things we at the Migration Policy Institute have advocated is that, look, it's a madness to keep on adding to the backlog. What we should do is that we should relieve the backlog from the immigration courts, which is where asylum cases are heard from the border. What we should do is that all new asylum cases from the border should be sent to asylum officers who are bureaucrats within the U.S. Citizenship Immigration Service. And they should be asked to adjudicate the cases and not immigration judges. And those cases can be dealt in months as against years. And they are those hearings are non-adversarial, Asylum office are frequently country experts, uh, and they uh, you can appear in those things even without a lawyer. And so I think if we do that, then we could add both efficiency and fairness to the system. So at the end of, we hope, less than a year, people who actually deserve asylum get it, and people who don't deserve are deported. So part of the of this new regime has to be quicker determination of qualified people and quicker removal of people who don't qualify. And I think that combination is going to send the message that look, unless you truly qualify for asylum, please don't come to the border. Right now, the message is if you reach the border and you just utter the words asylum, you'll make it. That has to change. And I think this is one of the few proposals which is likely to make that happen. 
Yeah. And and do you think the Biden administration has correctly defined what the issues are at the border that need to be fixed? I think the Biden administration, like all politicians, have defined the problem in their corner. We all, lawmakers especially, define the problem that's closest to them. The Biden administration chose to define the border as a problem of optics, that the sense of disorder is just not good for their narrative. So what they did is that they tried to bring order to the border. And how they brought order to the border was to create mechanisms for them to allow people into the country. And those are sort of quasi-legal mechanisms. We give people parole. We give people a notice to appear before a judge. We give people notice to report before an ICE agent. So all that does is shift the problem downstream, away from the border, away from the spectral disorder. But the downstream means the states and cities of the country, which is where the local outcry has been. This is where Governor Abbott and Ducey and DeSantis were successful in sending a message to the blue cities of the country that, look, you're going to now taste what we have tasted for a long time. And I think they have generally been successful in that narrative. So the reaction you're hearing from New York State and New York City and Chicago and, and Colorado and Philadelphia and Boston are all now downstream effects. And the downstream mayors and, and, and governors are looking at the problem just from their point of view, that these are issues of shelter and cost of housing and cost of schooling. Let's just deal with that. But no one is looking at the problem holistically. Look, the problem is the problem. The problem is that millions of people are trying to get to the border because they don't have a life in their country, and they hope they can make a life in the United States. And unless you deal with that uh, that large number of people coming to the border and how to process them, we can't, we're not dealing with it holistically. Right, and, and, and I've been reporting on the U.S.-Mexico border now for at least two decades, and, and for years we've been stuck in this rhetorical loop where, you know, mostly Republicans are saying there can't be comprehensive immigration reform until the border is secure. Um, but we need Congress to act on immigration reform, right? If we're going to get things, if we're going to fix things at the border. And the term secure border is sort of a moving target that means different things to different people. Um so how do you how do you get Congress? And I know this is un, this is a big question and probably unfair to ask you, but how do you get Congress to move on on finally uh, fixing immigration? You're absolutely right. That's why I was saying that these two uh, crises in immigration are related. That even Republicans, many of them, believe we have need for labor market uh, arrivals in the country. But they will say, well, we can't do anything about it. We, whether some of them actually mean it and some are using it in schools till we get the border under control. That's sort of their mantra. 
And their mantra, you're absolutely right also, their, their mantra of what that means changes, secure borders, the wall. Most importantly, Title 42. I mean, Title 42 was sold by the Republicans as if they had discovered the magic solution to our problem. That look, if you really have to keep control, keep Title 42 intact, because that's what President Trump did as his magic wand. Guess what? Title 42 actually landed up becoming one of the biggest pull factors for migration. Because during Title 42, we would not keep any record of people who are showing at the border. We're just giving them a U-turn without creating any any record of their past arrival or their criminal background. So they would people would make repeated attempts. And if they didn't get in the third time, the fourth, they would get in the fifth time. So it ironically became more as a tool for people entering the border than as a measure to keep them. I mean, people just have taken a long time to understand that. And the reason, because there was no consequence for making an unauthorized entry. What we suggest is that you have to have a consequence for making an unauthorized entry. And the consequence is that you will be expedited removal, which is the present law in place since 1996, that unless you have a basis for applying for asylum, you will be removed. And if you have a claim for asylum, which people should still have the right to do because we have that obligation under international law, then that claim should be processed very quickly. And unless you get that system in order, we will continue to have a large number of arrivals at the border. So ideally, therefore, an immigration bill should combine both these things. That, look, this is, first, I think we should do it administratively to get the asylum rules so we can begin to show the results. And I think that could be codified. That in future, if you apply for asylum, this is the process that you're going to that you're going to go through and couple that with new new admission policies for people to come legally. So I think if we do the two together, you may have a bipartisan consensus on that. And are there any countries that are doing asylum right? Uh, who do you see as leaders in protecting human rights while providing safe legal pathways or migration? Are there are, are there any examples that we can look to? Listen, people, you know, criticize, we criticize ourselves all the time. We are still, we take more people to the U.S. than the rest of the developed world together. Let no one, you know, ignore that. We are taking about 20% of the world's uh, international migrants. We are still the leader in the world on this. I humbly suggest that no country is doing it better. They made their narrative maybe better. The Europeans have gotten a lot of credit for their... It was a very short period of time when Europeans were welcoming. That sort of ended with the with Germans taking, you know, a million people in one year. It may have cost Chancellor Merkel her election and her, and her position. You know, I think... All European countries are dealing with the same issues as we are dealing with. The difference is that it takes 
it's harder to get to Europe than it takes to get to the U.S.-Mexico border. And we have now known that it's not just for Central Americans and, and Mexicans. It's an it's become a, a choice destination for migrants from all parts of the world as though they can get somewhere close to the Mexican border. So I think we are not only going to be the leading country which will set the example for others, we have already are leading country receiving others. I think if we shut down the asylum system, as some people have suggested, that will become the model for all developed countries. I don't think we should shut down asylum. I don't think we can be the leader in the world for protection if we shut down asylum. I think that's irresponsible and un-American. But we have to have do a better job in retooling our asylum processing system so that people who actually deserve it get it quickly and people who don't deserve it don't abuse it. That's where our, our focus should be. Right. Thank you. And, and at the Migration Policy Institute, are you looking at future projections for global migration, especially with, with climate change? And, and you mentioned Europe. You know, if people arriving from all over the world at our border is not just happening in the U.S., but but also happening in Europe as well. Uh, people are on the move all around the world. Um, and what you see, what I see on the rise is that, you know, Republicans, some Republicans in the U.S. are using a, a threat narrative when they talk about the border. They portray immigrants as invaders and as being dangerous. And um, the Migration Policy Institute, where you work, um, you also have an office in Brussels, which is the EU headquarters. And have you seen this threat narrative become more common in Europe as well? And is it usually paired with authoritarian movements, uh, with leaders like Viktor Orban in Hungary, for instance? And, and does that seem to sort of be taking hold in the rhetoric around migration that you're seeing globally? Uh, you know, I, clearly, Europe is going through some of the same issues that we are. Uh, but you're absolutely right that these issues sort of have much more resonance in populist regimes. Uh, migration now has become a very important factor in the politics of identity. Somewhat of that is wrapped around race. But, you know, these are deep issues. I mean, European societies are changing faster than we are. I mean, Europe hasn't had the the history of migration as we have had. So one should have a little more sympathy with Europeans. For them, the experience with migration is very recent. And they have had to build institutions, uh, both in the government and the not-for-profit sector, in an unprecedented way. Uh, but there's also a rise, as you point out, about authoritarian uh, tendencies. And those the migration is a very potent tool for those for those regimes. So they're clearly that uh, they're clearly taking advantage of that. But that doesn't mean that you know universal institutions and norms should not apply. 
I think the U.S. will still be a leader in making some of those things happen. That's why I believe that we have to really get it right in our own country. And getting it right means sending the principle that we're not shunning uh, asylum. We are making it more efficient and fair as well. I think if we set that example, we can then use our soft power to have the Europeans do the same thing. And we can also set an example by screening people for refugee protection before they come to the borders and the seashores in the case of Europe. I think that should be another component of this, that we should, you know, people have right to have their cases get determined abroad. And we are beginning to establish some uh, mobility centers within the region in, in, uh, in, in Central and South America. We could encourage Europeans to do the same thing. And I think if we begin to do that, we may build more of a cooperative arrangement in various parts of the world, if not all parts of the world. That look, there is there is a there is a burden sharing aspect to our obligations. That we don't have to take all the refugees that leave. I mean, you know, this the the Venezuelan example uh, was very interesting. That soon after the the political unrest in Venezuela, about 7.3 million Venezuelans left Venezuela. Most of them did not come to the U.S. Most of them actually sought protection in, I think, 16 Central and South American countries with U.S. encouragement. That, to us, I think, is the model. It's true that many of them have been displaced from those countries now because of COVID-related economic difficulties. But that was a model which we did help create. And I think if we do the same thing as a model in other parts of the world, we will get some handle on the situation. None of us should be under the delusion that migration crisis is going to be solved forever. This is an enduring problem. The push factors in these societies are deep, and they will continue to create migration pressures. The issue is that do you manage those crises in a chaotic manner or do you do them in a managed manner? I think migration well-managed is better than chaotic. And I think if it's well-managed, it even has more receptivity in the countries of, of reception, both politically and functionally, than if it's not. And therefore, it deserves more management than it deserves political rhetoric. Right. And, and, um, and, you know, we're, we're recording this in, in late September. And right now we have a lot of Venezuelans arriving at the border. And, you know, after Title 42, well, the Biden administration uh, put in this policy that people had to apply through CBP-1, this mobile app, in order to get an asylum appointment. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, people are still still arriving and not using the app. I mean, it's well publicized now that's had lots of glitches and, and not enough uh, appointments. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about why why people are arriving now? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Biden administration had a twin 
policy they did announce on what we call 511 on on, uh, on May 11th of this year is it had the policy of creating incentives for using the app and coming at the ports of entry and disincentives for people coming between ports of entry, in other words, without authorization. And there's hope that, look, if you're really eligible for asylum, then seek an, seek an appointment. Uh, and if you're not, don't even think about coming to the between ports of entry. You will not be allowed in, especially if you come through Mexico and you didn't apply for asylum there. Guess what? You know, we are letting in 50% people who come at the port of entry. So it really didn't work. It has been a porous mechanism because the we soon started establishing uh, exceptions to that. So people are coming with families. They're not put to expedite the removal between ports of entry. So, you know, smuggling networks are right. That look, if you have to come to the to the border between ports of entry, come with family. So we started having more families. And once you have families, the the border rules for the families are totally different than for single adults. We can't we, we can't arrest them. We can't sorry detain them in detention facilities. You treat families differently and people realize so we're letting frankly a large number of people still in. So the deterrence that was supposed to be the fact really has not worked that meaningfully. That's why apprehensions are going up uh, at the border in, in, the, in the last one month. So I think, again, to make the earlier point, people should still be able to apply for asylum. But I think if we are making the rules, then look, go through the app, then we should make app appointments available more easily. But even people who are coming to the app, they're not screened in for their asylum determin for their asylum credibility at the border. They're just allowed in, which obviously doesn't make it a deterrent. So if we want to make even the app thing work, people who get the appointment should be screened for credible fair determination at the border. Otherwise, it just becomes a little more orderly way of coming in, which was not the purpose of the of this reform. So unless we are robust in implementing even the policies that we put in place, they don't work. They become porous. So the stick doesn't become the stick that was intended to be. And all we land up sending is more and more people into the country, which then adds to the backlog of asylum, which led then adds to the cost of the cities and states that have become their destination. So it's hard to see what problem the administration finally solved here. And that's been kind of a little mystery about the implementation of these set of policies. Right. And, and, and you mentioned Florida and Texas earlier, and they've taken increasingly hardline stances against uh, immigrants and asylum seekers and they're passing harsh laws and detaining people. And more than a decade ago, we had states like Arizona with its uh, show me your papers legislation, passing bills that, you know, profiled people of color, and they were ultimately struck down by the Supreme Court. 
which ruled that the federal government has the ultimate authority over immigration policy. Do you see these state-led movements uh, different now than they were a decade ago? I, that's a very interesting question. I mean, this is sort of what we talk about federalism in in immigration law, that, you know, for good part of our history from the Reconstruction to 1996, immigration was seen almost exclusively as a federal issue. Then the uh, assertion of state authority in immigration started taking hold more after 9-11. And uh, so that's the contested territory. And you're right that the uh, litigation around uh, SB 1070, which is the Arizona law, went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court still said, look, it's fundamentally a federal authority that states have some role, but a limited role. It struck down most of the Arizona legislation uh, except one. Uh, And there has been some talk that states are introducing new legislation and passing bills, which, if challenged, would give another chance for the Supreme Court to rule on this federalism issue. And people have made the comparison about Roe v. Wade, that, you know, Roe v. Wade was settled law until another case had been brought for a different Supreme Court to rule. Uh, that's likely to happen. I mean, we already have uh, a DACA case going up to the Supreme Court, which is essentially another assertion by states to challenge federal authority. That's a bunch of Republican states. It's not a border issue, but challenging the exercise of discretion by federal government over a, uh, a subsection of the unauthorized population. So that's likely to go back to the Supreme Court. I am one of those lawyers who's not sure where the Supreme Court is going to, who I don't think I mentioned, I shouldn't say we can take for certain that the Supreme Court is going to change its mind and take the position in favor of the states. I think the Supreme Court more recently, the Roberts Court, is beginning to show its fatigue with states asserting their role in federal policy in general. Uh, It recently upheld the uh, authority of the Biden administration to use prosecutorial discretion in the way it wants. It recently allowed the Remain in Mexico program to be ended. Saying, but you know, some of these things are fundamentally federal issues. It's beginning to see immigration policy akin to, to foreign policy. That look, there are foreign policy considerations. We can't let 50 states have 50 foreign policies. So if you take that frame, it's quite likely that the new assertion of activism by the states may meet some resistance from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is also getting skeptical about individual federal judges issuing nationwide injunctions, which is what happens in a lot of these cases. And that may come for revisiting. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court does not re does not fundamentally alter the structure of federalism that immigration is basically a federal domain. 
and states and localities have a limited role to play, even though people think that the composition of the court has changed. Yeah, and are you looking um, at projections for future migration globally? Will will climate change, and, and I think I asked you this earlier, will climate change have a big, is that having the biggest impact, do you think, on pushing up global migration numbers? I... I, I don't I don't think we can say for certainty that it's having the biggest reason. I think the biggest reason is that uh, economic hardship in many of these countries is quite severe. I actually don't think that the that the poorest of the poor actually leave these countries. I mean, you have to have some wherewithal to make the journey all the way from Africa to to the uh, southern tip of Mexico and then to the north. I, I, I think people are really trying to improve their lives at a time when, when you know, many of these economies are very, are very challenging. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's still economic migration. Clearly, climate does add to the, uh, to the equation because climate migration is can also be economically driven uh the issue is that how do we treat climate migrants when they come if they begin to be treated as refugees and be seen through the refugee frame then then the pull factor for climate migrants is going to increase but i've heard unhcr which is un specialized body on these things actually being quite assertive that climate migrants should not muddy the waters, pardon the pun here, about, about uh, refugee admission policies. It just compromises the basis for that, you know, that's a very specific definition. We should not alter it. My own view is that climate uh, change and crisis is going to produce a lot of migrants. But most of them are best dealt with internal migration. That if there's a flood in a country, we saw one recently in Pakistan, one of the biggest floods, that did not produce migration to neighboring countries. That actually produced migration within the country. I mean, people don't have wherewithal in that to walk through borders. They just have an immediate crisis, which has been, that's best dealt internally. So I think most of us are concerned about climate crisis, should be thinking about how do we do with this in the domestic context of the countries, not necessarily how do we think of immigration or migration as a, as a solution for that. Yeah, thank you so much. I just have one, one last question for you. What do you predict for the future in asylum and immigration policy? What do you, what do you see uh, happening in the future? My belief is that unless we bring the present asylum system under some control, which means make it credible in the eyes of the body politic, we may lose asylum as we know it. Therefore, we have to get it right. And the only way to get it right is to convince people that we have a credible system to deal with people and their needs who actually deserve asylum. And 
not allow people to come and use it as a de facto way of entering the country. That element of certainty, credibility, and integrity to me is really important. And I think sort of doing, therefore, an, an efficient and a fair and a credible asylum determination is key if we have to keep the political consensus on asylum. And I think that's important for us to keep. You know, asylum is the defining nature, actually, of our country. People came here seeking refuge. And that's so much a part of our who we are that we shouldn't lose that. And we are in a danger of losing it if we don't correct it. That's why I think all the, all the reform of the asylum system is highly called for, and we should all put our focus on that. Thank you so much, uh, Musafar Chishti. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Hope it was helpful. You all do great work. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.